Find Exodus 20 in your copy of the scripture. If you're a guest of ours, we have been going through the Ten Commandments. We are up to the seventh of these. And uh, I know on our church media, you have gotten the announcement. Let me just reiterate, if you're a young family. Now, by the way, there's nothing I'm going to say this morning that your kids have not heard uh, in elementary school. I'm, I'm serious. But if you feel uncomfortable, your kids being in here, now would be the time to take them to children's church. Okay? I'm going to read a couple of verses this morning. Uh, you just follow along in your copy of the scripture. I want to begin, of course, with uh, Exodus 20. And the message this morning is safe sex. Biblical mandates concerning sexual intimacy. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. Then over in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then finally, over in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today what your spirit is saying to your church. Be with me as I preach, but Lord, be with each person as they listen. May we have sanctified hearing today. Lord, help me as I address a very difficult subject but a subject that we see permeating all of society most of the time in the wrong way and in sinful ways. Lord, is your church help us to conform to your word and live lives that are pleasing to you and worthy of the calling that we have in Christ our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you be surprised to learn that according to one translation of the Bible, adultery was not only encouraged, but it was commanded. In the 1631 edition of the King James uh, version of the Bible, it became known as the Wicked Bible. You see, when they were printing the Bible, the printers made a terrible error, a huge oversight. They left one word out of Exodus 20, 14. 
It was the word not. And so instead of reading thou shalt not commit adultery, it read thou shalt commit adultery. And so again, it's come down through history being known as the wicked Bible. Don't worry, they gathered up the translations. There's very few of them around today in some museums around the world. You can see a copy, but they're not out there. But you know, sad to say, it seems like society prefers that version of the Bible. Folks, there is an all-out assault in our culture today on the biblical sexual ethic. Just open up your average magazine. Cut on the television. Cut on the internet. Cut on the reality shows. On and on I could go with that. And sex is everywhere. Young people are dealing with it every day and many are not faring so well. Years ago, in fact decades ago, Josh McDowell did studies in this area. He's found that even among evangelical church young people in America, a large majority claim that they have had some sexual experience before the age of 18. He found in this same study that even in churches they are learning their morals on this topic not from their church, not from their spiritual leaders but they are learning about this from Hollywood. And again he found in this same study that the majority of these teens said that their church never addresses these issues. I've been asking myself, am I smart or stupid to do it? (laughs) You know, the past couple of weeks we've been talking about murder and suicide and euthanasia and abortion and capital punishment and just war and today adultery. I think tonight I'm going to read John 3.16 and we're going to dismiss and go home. I don't know though, I think the two Kevins and their spouses tonight want to do a verse-by-verse exposition of the Song of Solomon. (laughs) D.L. Moody in his book, The Ten Commandments. And keep in mind, D.L. Moody died in 1899. He said, I would to God I could pass over this commandment, but I feel that the time has come to cry aloud and spare not. He went on to say, this commandment is God's bulwark around marriage and the home. G. Campbell Morgan said in relationship to this commandment, there is no subject perhaps more difficult to deal with faithfully, and yet there is none demanding more honest and fearless handling. I want to talk to you today, though, about not what the culture has to say, but what the Bible has to say concerning sexual intimacy. First thing I want us to look at today is the purity of sex. Sex is not dirty. 
In Genesis 1, we're told that God created them, male and female. And we see that Adam was all alone, and God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him or corresponding to him. And so God created Eve. And the two became one flesh. I'm sure Adam must have been looking around and seeing Mr. Hippopotamus and Mrs. Hippopotamus and Mr. Robin and Mrs. Robin and so forth and so on. And again, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so God created the woman. And what did God tell them? Be fruitful and multiply. That, of course, involves intimacy. The first man and the first woman, as it has continued through history as well, have the opportunity of cooperating with God in the creation of new life. We also see something about marriage in Genesis 2. That the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The words literally have the image of being glued together. The image is of permanency. Marriage is supposed to last. They're glued together as one and they become one flesh. Intimate in all areas. God had a mate for Adam. I want to say to young people today, unless God has gifted you with celibacy for life, that is being single for life and sexually pure, unless God has gifted you for that, God has a mate picked out for you. It ought to be a matter of prayer. God has a choice for you. And His choice will always be better than your choice. You see, it's more than the color of the hair or the color of the eyes that matters. It's the character of the heart. I'm reminded of a very impatient young woman one time that was praying for a husband. She didn't get a husband. She went to her pastor and she said, Sir, I'm just praying and praying and praying for a husband. God's not giving me a husband. And he said, Ma'am, perhaps you're being too selfish in your prayers. So she went home that night and prayed, Dear God, would you please give my mother a (laughs) son-in-law? Proverbs 19, 14 says, House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Folks, again, God made marriage. He ordained it. And he ordained the physical part, the intimacy part, to go along with it. Sex is for procreation, but it's also for pleasure. It is intended for enjoyment within the proper boundaries of marriage. It's for all of these things. Pleasure, procreation, intimacy. He said they shall become one flesh. One in heart, one in mind, one in soul, one in flesh. A oneness. 
Hebrews chapter 13 says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now the church has often been off base on this subject matter. Now as I talk about the church we need to keep something in mind. There's always been splinter groups. There's always been some offshoot groups. Some of those grew in significance. But when we speak of the church for the first hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it was just the church. We would speak of it as being the Catholic church. Catholic in the sense of universal Of course, the Coptics split off in 451 A.D. after the Council of Chalcedon. And then again in 1054, there was a split in the church that created the Eastern Orthodox and then the Western Church, which now we associate with Roman, Western Roman Catholicism. But when we speak of the church up until the Protestant Reformation in the 16th beginning in the 16th century, really the seeds of it being sown in the 15th century. But until then, basically when we're speaking of the church, we're speaking of a unified body. And the church generally regarded sex. As a necessary evil. That's why I say the church has been off course. Tertullian, one of the earliest church fathers, regarded the extinction of the human race, the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. Ambrose said that married couples ought to be ashamed for their sexuality. Even a giant of influence like Augustine said that while intimacy in marriage may be lawful, sexual passion even in marriage was sinful. Many priests counseled young people to refrain from marriage altogether. The Catholic Church gradually began to prohibit sex on certain holy days so that by the time of Martin Luther, the list of holy days where couples could not be intimate was up to 183 days a year. As Dr. Philip Ryken says, thank God for the Reformation. which began to restore sexual sanity by celebrating the physical act of intimacy within marriage. Now believe it or not, folks, much of our gratitude is due to the Puritans. You wouldn't think of that generally, right? Today we tend to view the Puritans as a group that they were running around. If they saw anybody having any fun or enjoyment in life, they would try to stop it. And that's so unfair to the Puritans. 
The Puritans devalued celibacy. They glorified marriage as more than intimacy for procreation. They emphasized the importance of the companionship aspect. They affirmed sex within marriage as necessary and pure. They established the ideal of wedded romantic love. And they exalted the role of the wife. In other words, we owe much to the Puritans for establishing once again... A biblical sexual ethic. Secondly, I want you to see the perversion of sex. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's talk about the perversion of sex. And first of all, the most general word that the Bible uses to speak of this would be the word fornication. The biblical overview for this and for all sexual sin falls under the words poinia and akatharsia. That's a mouthful. These words sort of summarize a broad description of all sorts of sexual sin outside of marriage. Pornea is also translated as whoredom, fornication, and idolatry. It means a surrendering of sexual purity and it's primarily used of premarital sexual relations. Now from this Greek word we get the English word pornography stemming from the concept of selling off. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and it involves any type of sexual expression outside of the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship. The connection between sexual immorality and idolatry was established at Corinth. You got to remember at Corinth, at places like Corinth and Ephesus. They had pagan temples and temple prostitutes. And immorality was part of their worship of these false gods. And so sexual immorality and idolatry began being put together. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his, his own body. And he goes on to say, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you have sex with one of these temple prostitutes, you've joined Christ to that prostitute. One writer states, when we use our physical bodies for immoral purposes, we are imitating pagan worship by profaning God's holy temple, our bodies. Again, that's why sexual immorality was sometimes also linked together so strongly with idolatry. And many places in the Bible that speak of one speak of the other. They'll be joined together. Now, biblical prohibitions against sexual immorality are often coupled with warnings against impurity. 
Warnings against impurity. Romans 1, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4. And, and that's the second Greek word I put up there, which means defiled or foul or ceremonially unfit. It connotes actions that render a person unfit to enter God's presence. Those who persist in unrepentant immorality and impurity cannot come into the presence of God. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. It is impossible to maintain a healthy intimacy with God when our bodies and souls are given over to impurities of any kind. Now, I also want to include pornography under this general category. There are several places I could put this. This is as good as any. The world is watching right now the coronavirus. But folks, there is a much more rampant virus going around. Every second, there are almost 29,000 users of pornography on the internet every second. Over $3,000, almost $3,100 a second is being spent on pornography. Every day, 37 new videos are created in the United States. 2.5 billion emails every day containing porn are being sent back and forth. 68 million search uh, queries related to pornography are taking place. 25% of all searches on the internet are pornography related. 25%. And disturbingly, every day, 116,000 searches are related to child pornography. How does it affect Americans? Well, they say now about 200,000 Americans are classified as porn addicts. 40 million Americans regularly, habitually visit porn sites. Folks, that's more than a tenth of the population. 35% of all downloads are related to pornography. 34% of internet users have experienced unwanted exposure to pornography, con pornographic content through ads, pop-ups, pop emails, or misdirected links. And one-third of all porn users are now women. And so everything we can say about adultery and sexual sin, we can also say about pornography. Because remember, Jesus said these issues begin where? In the heart. And with the eye gate, he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Just about every study I've seen on reports 
of this nature report on the negative consequences of pornography on marriage because an image on the screen becomes a substitute for a real person and the intimacy with that real person, your, your mate, is adversely affected. If this is an area where you struggle, please come see one of us on your pastoral staff. We want to help you. We've had people come to us. And we don't share it with anybody. It's confidential. Well, under this category of perversions, the most natural that he talks about here is what? Adultery. Adultery is selfish in so many ways because adultery focuses on self-getting rather than giving. And the entertainment industry is making billions off of this, off of illicit sex. Almost every single image of sexual encounters that you're going to watch on popular TV shows is going to be among people who are not married. The playboy philosophy abounds. The playboy philosophy, the enjoyment strictly on the physical, animalistic level. You see, this is where the world's view and the church's view are so different because the world's view following more evolutionary models just concentrates on the physical. But the church includes the the soul and the spirit as well. Adultery breaks the one flesh bond between husband and wife. Genesis said that the two, the two become one. And adultery interrupts that sacred bond between husband and wife. That's why adultery is listed in the Bible as one of the allowable reasons for divorce. The spouse who has been sinned against has the biblical allowance to end the marriage because the sinning partner has already violated the one flesh bond by bringing somebody else into that one flesh bond. The bill of divorcement simply ratifies what the offending party has already done in reality. Now let me say, we've worked with couples here who have gone through adultery and there was forgiveness and restoration and they moved beyond that. There was repentance and we've seen some end up with wonderful marriages afterwards. So divorce does not have to take place under that case. But it's again, it's one of the allowances, adultery and abandonment. I also want you to understand what you already know. Adultery just doesn't happen in a vacuum. If you know that you are cultivating a relationship with somebody at work, somebody at school, wherever, you need to see the danger in that. There could be a man at home who's virtually ignored and some woman at work starts paying special attention to him. Or a woman at home, virtually ignored, a man at work starts paying close attention to her you need to see the danger in that you need to stop that
because danger is coming. And it ought to be an invitation that you would see that you need to start cultivating a healthier relationship with your spouse. You see, that's the best way to guard against adultery, isn't it? Is to cultivate a healthy marriage. Also, let me point out something. Sometimes people will say that Jesus never talked about these issues of sexual sin, especially about same-sex relationships. We hear people all over today saying Jesus never spoke on these issues. Folks, that's wrong on at least two levels. First of all, Jesus did address it. Read Matthew 19. When he was asked about marriage and divorce, what did he do? He carried the religious leaders and the crowd back to God's plan in Genesis where God established marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's what Jesus affirmed. Secondly, people who say Jesus never addressed certain matters fail to see the unity of Scripture and the inspiration of the whole Scripture. And what I mean by that is because we believe that the human writers were inspired by God. That means when Peter speaks, God speaks. When the Apostle John speaks, God speaks. When Paul speaks, God speaks. When Isaiah speaks, God speaks. So any portion of the Bible where any of this is taught about, the, the God, thank God for the four Gospels. I mean, that's where we learn about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. But the four Gospels do not constitute the entire counsel of God. God has seen fit to give us 66 books. And it's all the inspired Word of God. And so when any portion of the Bible speaks to a subject, that's God speaking to that subject. Now, I'll have more to say in a moment about adultery, and I'll, I'll include it with my words about the next perversion of sex. And folks, on this next one, I want you to understand, the Bible speaks very clearly on it. There's no way around it. To get around this next perversion of sexual intimacy, you would have to purposely set aside the counsel of Scripture. You see, nowhere does the popular culture today want the church to set aside the Bible any more than on this next one. But folks, you and I don't have the right to edit God's Word. Also, I want to say that in the case of sin, we love the sinner, but we oppose the sin. We're not opposed to the person. After all, the person is somebody who's created in the, in the image of God. But we dare not dismiss sin because God doesn't dismiss sin. So what is this next one? Well, it's all same-sex relationships homosexuality lesbianism scripture is crystal clear on all this it's also unnatural two men cannot fulfill God's command to procreate and fill the earth two women can't do that sometimes 
those who go in for this sort of thing say, you Christians need to keep the Bible out of it. Okay, if you, even if you keep the Bible out of it, nature still is a testimony against it. I would hope that if any homosexual or lesbian, though, ever approached a member of this congregation, that person would find somebody who would love them and pray for them and be a witness to them. But at the same time, we must, we must stand up for family as God created it. The New Testament in Romans 1 says that same-sex relationships are the fruit, the fruit of those who have rejected God and rejected God's truth. You see, there's a contrast being set up in Romans 1. Down through verse 17 of Romans 1, specifically verses 16 and 17 talk about the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel that saves people, whether you're Jew or Gentile or male or female, the power of the gospel is that somebody comes to Jesus Christ and they're transformed and they go on to live from faith to faith, as verse 17 says. But then beginning in verse 18, he begins talking about those who have rejected God's truth. And so he says that in his wrath, God has turned people over to their own desires to do what their hearts crave. It's the judgment of God. He says God has turned them over. It's not a good thing. It's a horrible thing to be turned over to do your own thing. The last half of Romans 1, Paul is not talking about Christians who may face similar temptations. I heard a sermon recently that was a spin on Romans 1, the last half of Romans 1, being Christian sins. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul has addressed believers down through verse 17, and then beginning in verse 18, he's talking about unbelievers. Not about believers, he's talking about unbelievers, and then all of the fruit that comes out of unbelief. Now, by the way, Paul addresses a whole lot more when he's in that section of dressing the fruits of unbelief. He talks about a whole lot more than same-sex relationships. He includes adulteries in that. He includes drunkards and idolaters. He's including quite a number of things. But you cannot say that same-sex issues are not addressed. Now also, as hard as it might be for you to wrap your mind around, in 1 Corinthians 6, the scripture says that those who persist in same-sex sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because they're not believers. Their lifestyle shows that they are not believers. What I'm saying, folks, is 1 Corinthians 6 does not allow for Christian homosexuals. Amen. 
There is no such idea in the Bible. That comes from the culture today, not from Scripture. Now again, by the way, 1 Corinthians 6 also lists sins that people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, there's, there's a laundry list there too. What I'm trying to show you is that there is no way we can honestly read and address Scripture without dealing with this. It is a matter of authority. Whose authority are we going to live by in the church? Are, are we going to live by God's authority in His Word? Or are we going to reject the authority of God and go with what the culture is saying in any given generation? Folks, it's a serious issue. What authority are you and I going to live by? What authority are we going to build our lives upon? You see, that's the real issue, isn't it? There's one other huge thing I want to point out. In 1 Corinthians 6, he points out the hope and the forgiveness and deliverance that is in Christ. Paul says there, such some of you were. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. There's forgiveness in Christ. There's hope in Christ. Folks, sad to say, think of all the consequences. All the consequences we see today of of the unbiblical sexual ethic we see in society today. The immediate consequences, diseases for instance, STDs are up dramatically today. And would you know it, because of pharmaceuticals out today, it's not just young people. One of the fastest growing segments of society today experiencing STDs is the senior adult population. And some of these huge retirement communities around America, STDs in those communities are exploding. Broken homes, hurt children, mistrust between spouses, unwanted pregnancies, abortions. Folks, this is something that threatens our very nation. The late Dr. Sorkin of Harvard University wrote in his book, The American Revolution. He said, and I quote here, Unless there's a change in America, we are doomed for the ash heap. He went on to say, No civilization, no nation, no empire has survived obsession with sex and impurity. This disease is eating the heart out of America. End quote. Another consequence is alienation from God. I think of King David with Bathsheba. 
And after he was confronted and he confessed that you ought to read Psalm 51 for his confession and repentance. But he says up until then, he was, he was so torn up inside and, and was so alienated and distant from God. And he had lost the joy of his salvation. Isaiah 59 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then the worst consequence of all? Eternal condemnation. Revelation 21 says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Eternal condemnation. You see the consequences? Both immediate and future. For those who will not repent of immorality. Well, lastly, let's talk about the prescription for safe sex. And I'm going to blow through these quickly. My time's up. Keep sex for marriage. Secondly, keep your mind pure. Matthew 5, Jesus said. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I read a moment ago Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Folks, it all starts right there for the Christian. Protect the eye gate and the ear gate and what your mind dwells on. That's where it starts. And that's where people today are being so careless. I want you to also know up front that the culture is going to absolutely condemn you and me for preaching a biblical ethic of sin. You know, it, was, it used to be true in previous generations that people caught up in these sins. There was a negative stigma to that. But today, all of that's celebrated and they want to attach the stigma to you and me. So I want you to know that up front. You live by biblical sexual ethic Society. If there's a popular contest vote, you're not going to be voted on. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be hated. You're going to be an outcast. Parents, you need to understand that your kids are going to be hammered for much of the time in, in school. Growing up. Because what are they exposed to now? This new sexual ethic that society has bought into lock, stock, and barrel. That means that kids need to be in church now more than ever. They need churches to teach scripture. They need one another. They need to see positive examples. And the, and the Christian home needs to become more so than ever a Christian mission station. 
Because Deuteronomy 6, the kids can't get here at, here at church. We only have people for an hour or two a week. But Deuteronomy 6 says, everything at home, when you lie down, rise up, walk, whatever you're doing, it ought to be rooted and grounded in this. A third prescription, focus on your mate, not on yourself. Read 1 Corinthians 7 sometimes. The husband is to focus on the wife's needs. The wife is to focus on the husband's needs. In other words, the focus is not self, but spouse. Obviously, grow in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Grow in the Lord. And then finally here, I'll say, cultivate love and romance with your mate. Ephesians 5. Lastly, let me talk about the pardon for sexual sin. You remember what happened in John chapter 8? The religious leaders brought a woman caught in adultery, threw her at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? This woman's been caught in the very act. He began writing in the sand. You have to wonder what he was writing. And then he said, He without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, beginning with the oldest even, they began throwing their stones and walking away. And then what did Jesus say? Woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, there's both. He didn't just... Say, neither do I condemn you. Just go about your way the way you are. But he said, I forgive you, but sin no more. There's forgiveness in the Lord. But the Lord calls for you to repent. Again, please seek out a member of your pastoral staff if we can help you. In any of these matters. We've already done so with numbers in our congregation through the years. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling in the Lord. Ephesians 4. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, a difficult topic to address but one desperately needed in our world today. Lord, help us to stand firm as the church, not compromise, but also that we would be individuals and we would be a place where people in sin could come and find help. Lord, I pray for those in this congregation right now who are struggling with these issues, that they would come to Jesus and that they would submit their whole lives out before you, Lord. 
that the spotlight of your word would shine on them, on each of us. Lord, that we would be pure vessels so that we can be salt and light in the world. Lord, if we become like the world, we will lose the prophetic voice of Scripture. Help us to see the seriousness of doing that. Help us to be true to you. And Lord, help us to live by what the apostles did in the early chapters of Acts. They told authorities, judge for yourselves who who to obey. You want us to obey you, but we must obey God more than men. Lord, help us to be of that conviction related to these matters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.